Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. You can begin to make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, we'd love for that to be a gift to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. The large numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers are verses. Uh, again, this morning we're in Galatians 1, 11 through 24. I had done praying just a few minutes ago and walked back to the pew and my son said, so uh, are, are you not preaching today? <laughs> and there was a glint of hope in his eye. <laughs> I, saw, I said, man, I'm really sorry, dad's still preaching. So, man, Family Sunday is a lot of fun having our kids in here, getting to see them join with mom and dad and see what it looks like for mom and dad to pay attention, to lean in, to focus on God's word and uh, occasionally to bump mom or dad in the ribs and say, you are snoring. Uh, so this morning we're in Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Let's read God's word together and then we'll walk through. Paul writes and he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, of my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, I was pleased to reveal, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They are only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Now listen to this. And they glorified God because of me. Now over the next two or three weeks, we're going to be entering into essentially what Paul is doing is setting the stage for the, the argumentation that he's going to begin to introduce. You see, one of the chief issues there amongst these churches of Galatia was the idea that you need to work for your salvation or uh, otherwise put that if you don't work and if you're not working you aren't saved and so what had been born in their hearts and what they came to understand and what was spreading out was this works-based salvation so it wasn't a salvation that rested on the work that Jesus had done on the cross and so they said we believe in this and so on the basis of his sacrifice we are welcomed in they found themselves coming up against this wall of works and to overcome this wall of works they had to invest in the doing of things. And so strict tour adherence, being circumcised, and any other number of, of, of rituals of obedience that they had to keep. And if they didn't keep them, their understanding was God wanted nothing to do with them. And so they had a salvation by works. Now before Paul can gain legitimacy in their hearing, before he can step in there and, and say these things and say, listen, it's not keeping the law that saves you. You're justified through grace. Paul first has to establish his authority, and so that's what he's going to do 
over this week and in the next couple of weeks. That's what we're going to begin to see. And so as he's going down through there, we recognize that one of the issues they have with Paul is they looked at him and essentially they said, you're Peter's boy. Listen, you, you don't really have any original ideas of your own. You're really just kind of parroting what Peter and what others said to you. And so Paul has to go through and he kind of gives his entire backstory. And that's what we begin to see kind of march down through there. This is where I was. This is where I went. This is how these things are going on. So I'm not, I'm not Peter's boy. I'm not John's boy. I'm not James' boy. I am Christ's. So look at how he begins. He says, I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He's separating himself. He's saying, listen, the things that I'm imparting to you have been given to me by Jesus. And the things I'm imparting to you, I'm not just parroting, parroting to you the things that I've heard that I've taken in from others. He says, it is not man's gospel, it is God's gospel. And how does he typify that? How does he describe that? How does he legitimize that? Verse 12, he said, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In essence, Paul says, you need to understand this, that I was changed, that I was radically transformed, that I was saved. And he describes it this way. He says, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the content of the Bible and you're thinking, what in the world is this guy Paul on about? What does he mean when he says that I came to know this, I came to preach this through a revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, the book of Acts gives us a picture of what happens after Christ's crucifixion through the planting of the early church. And one of the things you'll come to find in the book of Acts is you get into chapter 7 and you're introduced into this man named Saul, which is his Hebrew name, and, and then Paul is his Roman name. And, and when we're first introduced to Saul, when we're first introduced to Paul, he's standing there, and what we see is this young man named Stephen is being killed. He's being stoned because he's professing faith in Christ and he's preaching the gospel and he's out there. And so all these guys come over and they lay their coats at the feet of Paul and Paul supervises Stephen's execution. And when we pick up in chapter 8 in the book of Acts, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. So he's not an innocent bystander. He's not somebody sitting by saying, I wonder what this guy did. He's somebody standing by saying, yes, throw the stones harder, crush him, kill him, put him to death. And he goes on in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, it says, and there, uh, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was a zealot. He was sold out for his understanding of what it took to honor God. And what he saw in Christianity was a, a religion that was strictly an offense to God. And so whatever it took for him, that's what he wanted to do to put an end to Christianity. And so in the midst of this, Paul or Saul goes to his authority figures and says, Hey, listen. What we're doing here in Jerusalem, this is great. This has been really appealing. This is very edifying to me. I think we should take it to the next level. How about if I were to go up to Damascus? 
you know, it's 135 miles to the north. You've heard of Damascus. How about I go up there and I find the same kind of rabble-rouser group and I bring them back here and we hold a trial and maybe we just make this, you know, Stephen kind of round one and we just, we just make a thing of this. This is kind of what we do. I will be the guy. Let me be the hammer that brings these people back into orthodoxy. They said, well, this sounds good. You've got a lot of energy, a lot of vim and vigor. How about that? How about you just go on up to Damascus? So we pick up in chapter 9, and it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Listen what happens. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything in his life pointed that what he was doing was just and valid. Everybody in his sphere of influence looked at him and said, man, you are the guy. And Paul tells us here in this text, he said, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God. I violently tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. See, for Paul, it wasn't enough just to keep the Torah. It wasn't enough just to keep the law. Paul wanted to keep the oral interpretation of the law. Paul wanted to be so incredibly found close to God that it was just, it was, it was unconscionable for him that there were those moving against God. But all the while in his actions, all the while in his efforts, what do we read here? The Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me cries out he says who are you he says i'm jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do so saul gets up and these guys walk with him now this journey would have been six to three days depending if it's on foot or on horseback and so they're leading this newly blind man along the road they get him into the city he's sitting there he is broken he doesn't know what to do he's not eating he's not drinking and the lord appears to a man named ananias and he goes to Ananias and he says, uh, Ananias, you need to get up and you need to go to this guy, Saul of Tarsus, because he's praying, he's seen a vision of you and you need to go there and you need to help him recover his sight. And Ananias, you can tell that he's in this moment just kind of a, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, God, begging your pardon, sir. Uh, point of order? About this man... Do you know how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem? And he has authority here from the chief priest to bind all who come on your name. Are you telling me to go be arrested? Just to be clear, like I'm willing to do whatever you say, but <clears throat> just, you know, sir, pardon, you know, respectfully to you. The Lord responds to Ananias, and he gives us a window into what would be Paul's life. He says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When Paul comes to faith in Jesus, he's angry. And he feels justified in his anger. Because there are men and women, there are people who are leading others astray and away from God. 
And so he's marching down this road, and he's angry, and he's headed this direction. And in the midst of it, it becomes this shocking revelation that his anger was misplaced. That the direction that he was headed on in his life was the wrong direction. And the result that followed from that wasn't a life of ease and saying, that's on me, I'm sorry, God. Let me just go back and lightly alter and, and slightly change who I was and how I was engaging what God does for him is allows him to suffer in line with the sufferings he was bringing to others. He brings the sufferings of Paul home to Paul. In his salvation, he suffers. In his salvation, he loses everything. And in his salvation, he receives a commission from the Lord to go and be engaged, not in spite of of his former manner of existence, but in line with his former manner of existence. God's leveraging Paul's story for the impact of the gospel and for his glory. Verse 15, it says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, when he who had set me apart before I was born, Paul asks us to envision, and he reminds us of the words of Isaiah and of Jeremiah. Isaiah, speaking of, of his own commissioning from the Lord, of what it looks like for him to come to know the Lord. Isaiah 49 says, Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention to you, O peoples. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And then in, Isaiah, and then in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, we read the same thing in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. It says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Paul recognizes that in God's calling of him, that God had previously been at work. So it wasn't that Paul saw Paul out there and he said, hey, listen, you're really messing this up. Like, I was going to use you as a champion for me. I was going to use you to be an advancer of the gospel. I was going to use you mightily, and you're going to impact legions. But somehow you got misguided. Somehow you went and, and, and breeding these murderous threats and, and, and being witness to and party to and culpable for Stephen's death. You're ruining my plans, Paul. You don't read any of those things. We didn't get a sense that any of these things were true. It's a sovereign God. Knowing Paul's course, knowing Paul's actions, knowing Paul's temperament, found a way to mightily use him for the expansion of his kingdom. And here's the key in verse 15. He says, before I was born, he called me by his grace. Now you remember back to verse 6 in, in the book of Galatians. You see, grace isn't just for those of us who are hapless misfits. Verse 6 had said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ Paul wasn't deserting Jesus. Paul was persecuting Jesus. And how did Jesus arrest Paul's actions? How did he stop him in the midst of these things? He hid him with grace. Grace visited him on the road to Damascus. Grace caught him in his murderous threats. Grace caught him in his anger. And it completely changed who he was. And this is what Paul says. He called me by his grace. He revealed his son to me. What For what purpose? That I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, Paul is perfectly suited to preach to Jews. 
This is a guy who was raised in the synagogue. This is a guy who knew the Torah backwards and forwards. This is a guy who, when you would begin to quote scripture, would say, well, that's not exactly how that goes. Because he memorized the KJV. There's no message remix. There's no NLT. There's no NIV that's good enough for Paul. He's KJV only. (laughs) And in the midst of these things, this is kind of who he had been. But what does he do? He says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to send you to reach those people. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. This is where I'm going to send you. This is where you are going ultimately to die. But Paul wants the churches in Galatia to know. He said, listen, when he arrested me in the midst of these things, when he changed my course, when he altered my path, I didn't run to Jerusalem and say, Peter, you got to help me out. you got to let me know. I'm not really sure how to do this. My life has been turned upside down. I don't really know what this looks like. I didn't run over to James, Jesus' brother, and say, tell me what it was like to grow up with Jesus. Tell me what it's like. What do I need to be? How do I need to do it? In fact, what we find is in the midst of these things, Paul goes away. He goes away and he gets alone and he begins to think and he begins to ask this question, what needs to change with my now following Jesus? Paul knew the law. Paul knew the prophecies about the Messiah. Paul knew all about creation. Paul knew the Bible backwards and forwards. But what he comes to understand in this moment is since I have met Jesus, since he has radically changed my life, everything now needs to look different. I need to rethink my my life. I need to rethink my family. I need to rethink my vocation. I need to rethink the selfish motivations of my heart that said, all I really want to do is retire on the Sea of Galilee and just kind of kick back and fish occasionally and think, man, it was a good old days killing Christians. Love killing me some Christians. So he goes away, the scripture tells us, to Arabia for three years. And because he counts inclusively, he could have started in December of 18 and ended in January of 20. And he could have counted this as three years. So he's not necessarily saying 36 months. But he spent this time consecrated alone and reflecting and praying before the Lord and saying, what would you have me do? How would you have me be? In what ways do I need to rethink my life in the direction of where you called me? And this is a good question for us to ask. This is a good question for us to submit to the Lord over and over again over the course of our lives as we prepare to have children, as we prepare to go off to college, as we prepare to change vocations, as we think about moving, as we think about retiring. Every time you think about heading in a different direction, submitting your plans to the Lord and say, Lord, in what ways, if I gave you my plans and I laid them before you, in what ways would these look different? Don't live a life directed by your heart and directed by your hopes and your desires. Live a life directed by him because God's plan for your life and his desire for the people for whom he has set you apart to be impactful to. They need you to live a life in submission to Jesus. Just as the Gentiles needed Paul to live a life in submission to Jesus. Paul begins to kind of roll through this. And he says, listen, I was, I was saved by Jesus. I was commissioned to the Gentiles. And he wants them to understand that I spent this time away, God, welling up in my heart, leading me in these paths, but I never once gave myself to be overly influenced by men. And so he says, listen, you've heard that I went and visited with Peter. You've heard that I went and I spent time with James. That's true. I spent about two weeks there in Jerusalem. And so for two weeks, I was able to sit and say, what was it like to learn from Jesus? What were those three years like? But for two weeks, I heard them. 
Paul's not a person who's overly influenced by the people around him, but he is a person whose life has been leveraged for the power of the gospel. Verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Look what he says here. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. He's telling this church, these churches of Galatia, I wasn't there. I didn't camp out in Jerusalem. I'm not being impacted by them. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm just telling you that my gospel and my authority did not flow through Jerusalem. It flowed through Jesus. Paul gives us this stunning picture of gospel transformation. And gospel transformation, if applied, God leverages who we were for the impact of the gospel to his glory. He says, I was still unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. In essence, he says, if I were to roll into town, I were to come into any of the towns of Judea. I've walked down the streets. Nobody would have a clue who I was, but all of the people there would know of what I had been. They wouldn't recognize my face, but they would know my story. So he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And on the basis of the radical transformation of faith that occurred in my life, it led them to glorify God. Do you see the profound change there? I feel like if, we, if you grew up in church, and this is kind of the story you've heard, that we have just kind of whitewashed this. And so we know that at some point early on, there's this guy, Paul, who's marginally bad. And when he comes on the scene, we all go, boo. But then we have this understanding that it's just in the midst of this, a light shone, and he's walking, and his eyes are open. And everything's just great. But when you begin to come to the understanding that those he's writing about in verse 23 said, who was seeking to persecute us. Paul wasn't somebody distant and remote. Paul was somebody who stood as a threat to their lives. Paul wasn't somebody abstract. He wasn't an idea just kind of way out there that they had no notion of and no understanding of. Paul was somebody that when they heard his name, the first reaction they had in them was fear, was anxiety. Because Paul is someone who sought to put them to death. And when they came to this understanding of that's who he was, we recognize he's different now. And he's different now not because he came to an awareness. He's different now because he met Jesus. We began to see the freedom that the gospel provides. We began to see the change that the gospel provides for us and how it can affect us. Martin Lloyd-Jones early in his ministry is preaching at the Sandfields. And he tells a story about a, a man commonly known in his community as Staffordshire Bill. Now, Staffordshire Bill is in his 70s, and he is a reprobate. He is the town drunk. And anytime you saw him, you knew he was drunk. And anytime you saw him, you avoided him, and you walked in another direction. Lloyd-Jones' wife, Bethan, recounts, she said he was there one night, and he was drinking. And as, as was his custom, he was by himself, for even men who had few moral standards had long since learned to avoid his filthy language and his general unpleasantness whenever they could. So he's at the bar, he's drinking by himself, and he's commiserating, and, and years later he would talk about how he felt in those moments that he was trying to drown his inward pangs, his fears, his sense of hopelessness. 
But he began to overhear people at a table beside him, and they said something uh, along the lines of a preacher and something along the lines of Ford. And she said, and what he heard next completely changed his life. He heard a complete sentence. He heard one of the men say, I was there last Sunday night. And that the preacher said nobody was hopeless. He says there was hope for everybody. He says of the rest of the conversation, he heard nothing but arrested. And now completely sobered, he said to himself, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. If you were to meet somebody in Wales and were to have asked them in this day, do you know Staffordshire Bill? They would say, oh yeah, I saw him passed out in his cart being drug up the street. Do you know Staffordshire Bill? They would say, I've had the misfortune of meeting him and speaking to him. But after he came to faith, he no longer went by Staffordshire Bill. His change was so incredibly pronounced and acute that he began to go by William Thomas. And when men and women saw him and when they spoke to him, he was no longer the drunk. He was no longer the man they avoided. He was no longer the person they didn't want to run into. He was a person who had passed from condemnation to life. And he was a person that when you looked at his face, you saw the joy, the light, and forgiveness of Jesus. And that's the same thing that you and I have. When you think about your former manner of life, when you think about who you used to be, and you think about all the ways that you followed sin and all the ways that you pursued death. And then you recognize the intersection of the gospel and the visitation of grace in your life. There stands the testimony that can lead men and women to give glory to God. Because they recognize it. This is not the man I knew. This is not the woman I knew. This is not the life that I've seen. And they see in you the life of Jesus. Now listen, maybe you're in here. You came to faith as a child. And you say, my former manner of existence was, was not a great deal different than my current manner. I've not seen this profound change in my life. But what you see in your life, over the entirety of your life, is this struggle against sin. And maybe you find yourself today in a struggle against sin, and you feel that sin is winning the battle. You're angry. Everything that anybody says to you that goes against what you think, that goes against what you want, you go from a 5 to a 10. In honesty, you're, you just stay at an 8, your anger somewhere right below the surface, and you just bubble over. It doesn't matter what it is, this is where you go. The grace of God calls you out of that anger. The grace of God pulling you closer and closer and closer to the heart of Christ gives you an opportunity to go to the people around you. In those moments of, of recognizing the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you and he's calling you out of sin to go to the people around you and say, listen, I'm a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. And what you've been experiencing is not who I am. What you've been experiencing is my sin visited upon you, and I'm wrong. And I'm sorry, 
and I am broken. Would you forgive me for sinning against you? What we do in those moments is we're not pointing back to our testimony and saying, this is who I was before. We're saying, this is who I am now. I am a person daily in need of grace. And what we have an opportunity to do in those times is to not point to how great and how humble we are, but to point to how merciful and how glorious our Savior is. So maybe for you it's not anger. Maybe for you it's fear. Maybe for you it's addiction. Maybe for you, you're not even sure how to describe it, how to articulate it. But you know now, here in this moment today, I do not feel close to the Lord. I do not feel close to my wife. I do not feel close to my husband. I do not feel close to my children. I do not feel close to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I feel adrift. Can I remind you of his grace? Can I remind you of his mercy? You don't have to find yourself on the road to Damascus being angry. You can find yourself on a pew in a church. You can find yourself at home on your couch. You can find yourself at your desk on a Monday. You can find yourself in the midst of a commute. You can find yourself begging him once again for a fresh covering of his grace. This is how he wants us to live. This is how he wants us to experience. And this is the hope for our community. That Christians would be those who jointly come to one another and just say, y'all, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. And our brothers and sisters would join around us and say, can I pray with you? Can I be with you? We need to be the kind of parents but when we're angry, when we're frustrated with our kids, come to our kids later and just say, listen, mom and dad were wrong. That's not how we want to be. That's not how we want to respond. We need to point our kids constantly to the grace available to them and needful for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? And listen, we have a perfect opportunity this week. Some of us, we're going to be cutting grass. Some of us, we're going to submit our bodies to the chiggers of Hunt County. And I've done this uh, several years, and it's just better if you think of yourself as a sacrifice. <laughs> and somebody's going to say, why do you keep scratching? What is up with you? You have a chance in that moment to tell them about the grace of Jesus. You have a chance in that moment to tell them about how you were struggling with selfishness and you just wanted to stay home and you didn't want to give of your time and you didn't want to give of your heart. And the thing's going to work whether or not you're there anyway. But how in a moment you just got honest before God and you said, God, I want to be useful for you. I want to be used by you. I don't want to pursue my selfish interests anymore. And God in that moment gave me a fresh experience of his grace. So that's why I'm here. And I'd love to tell you how that grace can be yours too. Y'all, we need to be those who are broken. We need to be people who are ready to be vulnerable. And we need to be quick to run to the side of those of us in this room and beyond who are struggling. Amen? Hey, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and opportunity to worship you. God, your grace 
is saving, it is transforming, it is equipping. But there are those of us in this room who have yet to submit ourselves to your son Jesus. God, maybe they know the story because they've grown up in the South and they've heard people talk about you and they've heard people talk about your son, but they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. So God, I would just pray that just in these moments and the moments to follow, that you would convict them of their sin. God, that the death Jesus died on the cross, taking upon himself their sin, taking upon himself your wrath, and then you're bringing him back to life again so that they might be forgiven. God, that by the power of your spirit, you would lead them in their hearts to say, yes, I want that for me. God, that they would join with men like Staffordshire Bill and say, if there's hope for all, then there's hope for me. God, there's hope for the angry of us in here. There's hope for the most wayward of us in here. God, there is hope for all to be had at the cross of Christ. Would you lead us to the enjoyment of that hope? And God, would you lead us forward? embracing your hope and extending it to a world that so desperately needs it. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.